Uh, it's good to see you. I, it's so easy to just let that hour slide and, oh, I forgot. But I'm glad that you're here this morning. Um, I'm going to bring up something before we get into the Word today. Uh, this year, we're going to start collecting for the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Uh, the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, it goes towards North American missions uh, for missionary work in the United States and Canada. It's something that Baptist churches have been doing for over a hundred years, I think now. So if you're not familiar with what Annie Armstrong, what they're doing, I'm, we're going to play a little video clip for you uh, to just kind of let you know a little bit more about it, and then we'll talk a little bit more about it after that. So watch this. When you and your church give, you send hope. In small towns, big cities, and college campuses, God uses your sacrificial giving and your partnership with the North American Mission Board to make this happen over and over again. And at NAM, we think it's important for you to know how God uses your gifts to produce results. Southern Baptist churches like yours fund North American missions through two primary sources. First, the cooperative program. Your gifts to the CP typically come from your church budget and then go directly to your state convention. Each state then sends a portion of that money to the SBC Executive Committee, and from there, more than half of CP goes to the International Mission Board. NAM, SBC seminaries, and other entities receive a percentage as well. NAM receives 22.79% of cooperative program dollars. We use those funds to support evangelism events, to support ministry centers and missionaries, to endorse chaplains, and for operations. Altogether, those funds make up 35% of our budget. But the largest part of them's budget, 50%, comes from the Annie Armstrong Easter offering for North American missions. More than 100 years ago, this offering was named for a bold missions advocate who rallied SBC churches in support of missionaries. Today, Southern Baptists have thousands of missionaries serving in North America. They are spreading the gospel through Sin Network our church planning arm, and Send Relief, our evangelistic compassion ministry area. And when you give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering through special offerings, your church budget, or directly to NAM, you're helping these missionaries by providing the fuel to assess, train, coach, and care for them. It helps pay for things like Bibles, curriculum, ministry equipment, or even rent for a worship facility. Some churches may refer to this offering as the North America missions offering or something else, whatever you choose to call the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, it is unique because every dollar goes directly to support missionaries where the need and the opportunity are the greatest. It goes all over North America, including our largest, most influential cities where the gospel presence has been on the decline. Your giving helps plant new, reproducing churches. And now in many urban areas, we're starting to gain ground. It goes to places like international and refugee communities where tens of thousands of people, many from countries close to the gospel, move every year. Your giving is sending missionaries to love them and share the hope of Christ. In a hundred different ways, in a thousand different places, all of your gifts are enabling missionaries to start new churches, baptize new believers, and make disciples. That's how your giving works. As you pray and give, we at the North American Mission Board are so grateful to be your partner, helping you fulfill the Great Commission. 
Together with you and your church, every day we are sending hope. Now, there are two ways that you can support North American missions. The first is to pray. Um, pray for the missionaries that are being sent out just throughout North America. Believe it or not, Cincinnati is vastly uh, unreached, and there is a Cincinnati has been listed as a Sin City with the North American Mission Board. There is a there are church plants supported by giving through uh, the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. But besides praying. We're going to have these envelopes that are out at the welcome desk out, outside the worship center. Uh, we're going to set a goal for the church, because not done this before, for $1,000, uh, to try to reach a goal of $1,000 to send to the North American Mission Board to help support the work that they're doing. If we go above that, that would be wonderful. But I want to remind you, this is not in place of your giving. This is above and beyond what we give to support our local church. Uh, one of the other neat things about this is, if you notice, they mentioned the Send Relief. Um, they actually support uh, missionary work in poverty-stricken or areas that have experienced troubles and in, in things. They, they've done stuff in, in Kentucky with the tornadoes we had uh, last year, but they're also going into the Ukraine. They're not actually going into Ukraine right now because they can't get there, but they are sending funds to support those who have been displaced uh, to help minister to them and hopefully share the gospel and God's love with those people whose lives have been so incredibly changed by the events that have happened there. So keep this in, in mind. Pray about this. Um, just remember that it all goes towards supporting missionary work. It's not administrative costs. It, Dollar for dollar, it goes to support reaching people for Christ. So I think this is a great thing for us to participate in, especially leading up to Easter, which is when will be the cutoff day for us collecting for it. But if you're interested, the envelopes will be out at the welcome desk right outside. Now, after we've talked about money, we're going to get into God's Word this morning. So if you want to, if you want to go ahead and find Matthew chapter 18, which We'll be in Matthew 18 this morning. Um, I learned a new word this week, actually a few weeks ago, but I learned a new word from Wikipedia, and just throwing it out there, if you're writing research papers, do not use Wikipedia as a source, because <laughs> it's crowdsourced, it's not legit. But this word is called contextomy, and a contextomy is also, it's known as um, quote mining. It, it's a type of false attribution in which a passage is removed from its surrounding material in such a way that it distorts its intended meaning. Uh, contextomies, they occur both intentionally and as well as accidentally. Uh, one of the most familiar ways that we see this in the world today, it takes place in marketing, where, where marketers, they use these review blurbs especially when they're advertising for movies. It's like you're reading the review for the movie and it might say, it's as riveting as watching paint dry and as imaginative as a box of rocks. But when they put the poster out and the ads for the movie, they just put imaginative and riveting. And they've taken those words out of their context to try to make something more appealing. It's easy for us to take things in our culture out of context but we need to be especially careful about taking God's word 
out of context. And I want to believe, I really do, that most people accidentally, not intentionally, quote the Bible out of context. Um, See, my prayer is, as we continue this series, Context Matters, is that we're going to learn how we can just slow down for a minute as we're studying God's Word um, and read what comes before it, what comes after it, so that we can correctly interpret and imply these verses to our lives. And I want to just say, especially this morning, you might find yourself pushing back a little bit um, because we're going to unpack a verse that most of you are probably very familiar with and read it a different way. But my goal, my goal really isn't to unsettle you, um, to not have you any longer quote these verses, but my prayer is that when we see this in context, that our love for these verses will deepen and they'll become even more important to us. Now, the text that we're going to look at this morning, it is so popular. Um, it's found in Matthew 18, verse 20. Uh, and to, just to see how well-known it is, I'm going to say the first part of it, and I want you to finish it if you know it, okay? You ready? For where two or three are gathered in my name... There I am among you. Now, we often connect this verse with prayer. We often connect this with church gatherings. But its primary meaning is very different. So I want to pray real quickly, then we're going to read our text for this morning. And then we'll see what Matthew 18 verse 20 really says to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity uh, to be together in, in this place to worship you, uh, to just spend this time as just worshipful people. Lord, I ask that as we study your word this morning, that we see the importance um, of knowing what your word teaches us so that we don't take these things out of context, so that we see the truth that your word contains and how we can apply it to our own lives. Open our hearts to you, to your word, and speak into our lives and allow us to use what we learn today in our own lives, in our own situations. Lord, thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Thank you for what he's done for us. And I just pray all of this in his name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Here's verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, what this text is teaching us 
It's giving us some basic principles, the four steps that we need to take when someone sins against us. This passage is dealing with what do we do when someone sins against us. Now, I want you to know that the first step in this process is probably the hardest. In fact, it is so difficult that we just skip it entirely. And because of that, because we just roll right past this, we're going to spend most of our time this morning right here. And I want to camp here because this step is where I believe most conflicts can be resolved um, if we were able, if we will just have the courage to do it. So the first step to take is a private meeting. The first step when someone sins against us is to have a private meeting. And, and, and that's because we really need to be sure that that person, that brother or sister, has sinned against us. Um, it, it, it's, it's, this is important because sometimes what we do is we label something as a sin when it's actually a preference or a pet peeve or a personality trait. Or maybe it's just a personal irritation that bugs us. <laughs> You're not going to like this. Just because somebody gets on your nerves doesn't mean that they're sinning against you. I know we'd like that to be true, but it doesn't. It's not. In those instances, what we're called to do is to bear with one another in love, according to Ephesians chapter 4. And let's be honest with each other. We're all friends here. Some people, some people need a lot more bearing with than other people, don't they? And I know there's someone or something or someone who's popped into your head right now, isn't there? That's okay. It's, It's okay. Sometimes the truth is we're just called to overlook something, not say a word if we can. Proverbs chapter 19 verse 11 tells us good sense, not bad sense, not anger, good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. You know, it's, it's, it's one thing to just bear with somebody when they're getting on your nerves, but to actually overlook something, that's a different ballgame, isn't it? But a little good sense should, should make you slow to anger. You know, maybe start overlooking some of those things that are nagging at you, irritating you, or jumping up and down on your last nerve. Now, while we need to bear with some things, overlook other things when we can, we are not meant to put up with sin. Matt Smethurst writes, he said this, the church... The church should be a safe place for sinners without being a safe place for sin. Did you get that? The church should be a safe place for sinners and not without being a safe place for sin. We're sinners. And who's got the courage to say that or not? Any hands? No? Good. <laughs> we don't have to deal with that. Sometimes, sometimes... We can't keep our anger and our hostility inside of the box. Isn't that true? 
And if your brother or your sister, if they've sinned against you, there are first two, there are two very important imperatives in our text. We're just to go and tell. Jesus says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. See, he doesn't say, why don't you just wait around, hang out, and wait for them to come to you because that'll probably never happen. We have to go. We can't be casual. We can't be indifferent. We can't even act like it'll just go away on its own because it's not going to. Don't ever wait for the other person to come to you because you'll probably be waiting a really long time. And this is important. Working towards reconciliation, working towards reconciliation is always my responsibility. You can't worry about what the other person, wait for them to, 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 to proposition that reconciliation. That's your responsibility. So whether we've been sinned against or we've sinned against someone else, it's always our duty our responsibility to, to go to them. And this first step, according to Jesus, is supposed to be, it's supposed to be between you and him alone. Nobody else. See, what he's saying is, if a brother or a sister, if they have sinned against you, they need to be the first person to know, not somebody else. See, conflict, conflict is never resolved accidentally. It's only resolved intentionally. And, and I want to share some reasons why this is so important with you this morning. The first reason this is important because it avoids shame for the other person. If you go public with the offense, if you just start blabbing without talking to that person about it first, you could bring shame on them. And I know you might want to, but that's not the goal here. The principle that we find in Jesus' teaching is to keep that circle small. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 9 says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. See, we take care of this with the person. It can help avoid shaming the other person. It also minimizes misunderstandings. It minimizes misunderstandings. Sometimes, I know you don't want to hear this, but sometimes you're going to find out that you were mistaken. Or maybe it was just a simple misunderstanding. And it can get cleared up by just talking about it. There's actually an account in Joshua 22 where um, two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan, they, they built this altar, which isn't good because they're not supposed to have an altar. So the other tribes, they got angry, they got upset, they started making accusations, and they were ready to go and kill their brothers. And when those two and a half tribes explained what they did, that they built this altar as a witness to their children, the issue went away. It was resolved. The Israelites had not only misunderstood what was happening, they judged and they threatened them. And all it took was a face-to-face -face meeting to clear it all up. 
when we go to that other person, it minimizes misunderstandings. The next one, it keeps you from hating the person. When somebody wrongs you, when they sin against you, it doesn't feel good, does it? You're angry, you're hurt. But Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17 tells us, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Because when you get angry with someone, when you hate somebody, it's just like killing them because you thought about it. See, if you don't deal with the issue... If you don't go and talk to that person, it could develop into a hate for that person. Don't let that happen. The next reason we need to have a one-on-one with the person is that other person might not even know they've wronged you. They might not know that they've offended you. Think of it. Psalm 19 says that we all have hidden faults. Um, Have you ever done something not realizing that little words that you said, somebody may have took them out of context and you hurt them? You didn't mean to. Sometimes you don't know that you've offended somebody and just talking about it takes care of it. The next one is it limits gossip. The sad thing here is most of us, the first thing we do is not go tell that person, hey, we've got a problem, something bad's happened. We go to our neighbor and we go to our other friends and say, can you believe what they did to me? Can you believe they said that? And what happens? It snowballs and it gets out of hand until everybody's talking about it. We need to limit the gossip We need to be talking to the person in private about what they've done, not to somebody else. Proverbs 25, verse 9, and in case you haven't caught on, Proverbs has a lot to say about this. Proverbs 25, verse 9 says, Argue your case with your neighbor himself, and do not reveal another secret. Argue your case yourself. But what do we do? We go to Tassa. I can't believe them. They're just such, they're so mean to me. Let me ask this question. When's the last time you practiced going and telling without saying a word to anybody else before you did it? This passage tells us that we need to go quietly. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 says that we need to do it quickly. Paul writes, do not let the sun go down on your anger. And Matthew 7, 5 reminds us to do it carefully. You hypocrite. Do you remember this last week? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, the biggest reason for telling in private It's because it's going to handle most situations. This is going to fix things the majority of the time. And Jesus says, if he listens, you have gained your brother. (laughs) Understand that if we skip this first step, 
with a private meeting, what we're doing by start telling other people is short-circuiting that person's restoration. Jesus says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And that word gain, it's a financial term. It means that I've invested myself. It means I've earned a profit because that person listened. The big thing to remember is that the goal is always restoration. Our aim, our, 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 our desire should be to win our brother or sister, not to win the argument or win the battle. Because working towards reconciliation is always my responsibility. The first step is to take is to have a private meeting. The second step is a private meeting with witnesses. The next step is a private meeting with witnesses. If the person, if they've sinned against you, they don't listen because they might not. When you go and tell, when you've spoken with them privately, if they don't talk to you, they might not even talk to you, then it's time to increase the pressure by involving others. Jesus says, but if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Um, it, that's actually coming from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy 19.15. Um, a person could not be convicted on the word of just one witness. There was no he said, she said. It wasn't even admissible. Nobody was going to listen. Well, they weren't supposed to listen, but you know how people are. It wouldn't hold up in court. It was for people's protection so, so that no one could pass along information that wasn't confirmed by somebody else. Now, now there are some really good benefits for having another witness or two. Um, first, they can establish uh, the facts so that you can't, the other person can't just say, hey, they're making this up. No, I have a witness. They heard what was said. Having a witness also allows them to observe the other person's reaction because even if they deny something, sometimes they're just going to give it away by how they act because people are kind of suspicious sometimes. Also taking a witness, it helps indicate the gravity of the situation because it's saying that there is a need for this to happen. It reinforces that need for repentance and restoration. Having some people along with you also keeps it from getting ugly and escalating. But those witnesses can also remember and record what was said and done. But again, the objective is restoration. If they repent, you need to restore, you stop the process, and we're still not meant to tell anybody else about it. If this step works, it goes no further. The whole matter is dropped. It's act, it hasn't happened. Now, if it's not resolved at this point, then we move to the third step. See, if you notice the passage, it moves from this singular involvement to a plural engagement the further you go. The first step is a private meeting. The next, it's another private meeting with witnesses. And the third one is a public announcement to the church. This is when things are getting out of hand. 
Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, this is a serious step in the process. It shouldn't be rushed into. It's not like, well, we talked to him once. It didn't work. Let's take it in front of the church. Uh, churches were really well known for a long time about church discipline and taking care of business like that. Uh, but people would go to the church and skip the other steps. That's not how this works. This step is only taken when there is a continued, confirmed, unrepentant sin. See, we're not to be out there on a witch hunt looking for, for sin. We're not the sin police. Membership in a church, it has its privileges, but it also has its responsibilities. This level, just like the first two, is meant to be loving in nature. It might not seem like it, but again, the goal is reconciliation and restoration. And, and there are some reasons why we need to pursue this step. First, it upholds God's holiness. It also purifies the church by taking care of unrepentant, confirmed sin. It discourages other people from sinning. But it also conveys biblical love with an open pathway for restoration. Now, the first step is a private meeting. Next, a private meeting with witnesses. The third one is a public announcement to the church. And finally, this is the rough one, public exclusion from the church. The last step is public exclusion from the church. Jesus says, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, Gentiles, they, 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 they weren't even considered real people. A tax collector in the Jewish nation was often a traitor who worked for the Roman oppressors. Both groups were the outsiders. Now, the exact form of this exclusion in the church isn't specified, um, but the objective here is once again restoration. But... I have to say, and, and Paul, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that we shouldn't even eat with that person that we've pushed and excluded from the church. And there's two important reasons for that, and I want to share those quickly. The first is so that we can correct the offender. The first reason we do this is to correct the offender. Um, if, so say I go to my doctor's office and they say, You've got a tumor. It's not a headache. It's, it, it's, it's a tumor this time. It, it's, the surgeon's not going to say to me, I'm not going to operate on you because it's probably going to hurt. You're going to be really sore afterwards. It's going to be a really long recovery. So I just don't want to put you through that. Would he? No, he would say, we need to get this tumor out of you as soon as possible, despite the pain that you're going to experience during the process. But what do we do when we're confronted by another believer who sins? I just, I don't want to be too harsh with them. I, 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 I don't want to hurt them too badly. I'm just going to keep on spending time with them, sharing meals with them, acting like nothing ever happened. And what we really need to say, what we really need to say is, I'm not going to fellowship with you. Not because I'm mad at you. Not because I don't love you. On the contrary, 
I care about you so much that I can't allow you to keep going along and living the way that you are, acting like there's nothing wrong. That nothing happened because sooner or later, that tumor is going to take a terrible toll on you. So it's first to correct the offender. And the second reason we do this is to protect the body. We do this to protect the body. We don't fellowship with that person so that we can protect the health of the church body as a whole. Um, See, the people that we hang around with, the people that we associate with, they start rubbing off on us, don't they? We start to think the the way they do. We start talking the way that they do. You know it's true. Just think about the people that you work with, that you hang out with, uh, the people that you spend the most time with. You, You start using the phrases that they do. You start sounding like them. You see the things that they do, and at first you're like, well, that's not really that right. And then it's like, well, they're doing it can't be that bad. And eventually you start doing it as well. I have to remind you that this process only applies to people who claim to be a Christian. See, we don't judge those outside the church. God takes care of that. We don't judge people in the church for their past because What you did before you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior doesn't really matter. See, when we're saved, all of our past sins are forgiven. But don't misunderstand this. Um, There can still be repercussions for your sins. The things that you've done in your life in the past, consequences don't go away. But the wages of death the wages of sin, too. See, what we're called to do is a form of discipline. Um, little English language here. The word discipline, it carries the same root as disciple. It's about teaching. We need to make the distinction between discipline and punishment. See, discipline carries a goal uh, with the goal of teaching and training. And punishment, well, that's just an end in itself, isn't it? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That's true, isn't it? I mean, nothing, discipline does not feel great when it's happening. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, if you're like me in this four-step process, it feels kind of intimidating, doesn't it? But knowing this, Jesus gives us two promises when we follow him in these teachings. He gives us some promises for obedience. He gives us some promises for obedience And the first of those promises is the promise of His power. There is the promise of His power. See, when we pursue biblical peacemaking by following these four steps, 
Verses 18 and 19 tell us that what is done here is declared to be so in heaven. Jesus says, truly I say to you, which is amen, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. See, what he's saying is that heaven itself endorses the activity of the church when discipline and restoration is done the correct way. There is a promise of His power, and then we see there's a promise for His presence. There's a promise for His presence. Now, it's taken us a long time to get here, but we're finally getting us to set the context for Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Do you notice anything? That the two or three are the witnesses that Jesus is talking about? It it, it sounds like this nice promise for prayer when you take it out of context, but it breaks down actually, doesn't it? If God is only with us when there are two or three gathered, does that mean He's not with me when I'm praying? Does that mean when there's more than three, he's not with us? It doesn't say two or three. It doesn't say two or more. God is always present, but he is especially present when we are seeking restoration according to his will. Now, as we think about how to apply this passage, we can do that by asking ourselves, a couple questions. And the first is, am I treating the other person I'm in conflict with as someone God loves? Now, we normally treat that person as an enemy. We treat them as somebody that we don't like. But verse 15 uses the word brother twice. It indicates that God does not want conflict in his family. A a good example of this is found in Genesis chapter 13 when Abraham does some conflict resolution with his nephew Lot. It says, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. We're family. Let's not fight. Second question we need to ask ourselves, is my goal reconciliation or retaliation? Is my goal reconciliation or is it retaliation? Are we just doing it to get even? Are we just doing it to win the fight? Or are we seeking restoration and reconciliation with that person? James chapter 5, it reminds us to bring back the one who is wandering. Verses 19 and 20 in James chapter 5. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The next question we need to ask is, how's my attitude? What is my attitude like in this? Before we go to that person, we need to make sure that that we're not going with some sense of spiritual superiority. Instead, we need to go with humility. 
We need to come alongside that person, not above them. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of hostility and anger and just frustration. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is somebody when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We need to come with a spirit of gentleness in the process. Last question, how willing am I to obey? How willing are you to obey what Christ teaches? These commands come directly from the mouth of Jesus Christ. That means this isn't optional. This isn't pick and choose time. This is the way that Jesus intends for us to deal with someone who sins against us. That means your way isn't better. Mine isn't either. His way is. As a follower of Christ, we don't have the option of disregarding His commands because it's too difficult. And there's one last thing that we need to do, and it might be the hardest of it all. When someone sins against us, we are to forgive them. Right after this passage, we see in verses 21 to 35 that we must be willing to forgive someone 70 times 7, or 77 times when someone sins against us. And just so you know, that means quick counting, that there is not a limit on forgiveness. Because if there were, we'd be in a lot of trouble. C.S. Lewis once said, Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have someone to forgive. And that's the truth. We're all happy and glad about saying forgiveness and, and oh yeah. But once something's affecting us personally, it makes it so much more difficult. Basically, we're called to forgive the faults of our fellow believers. And the only way that we can do that is to remember how much we've been forgiven ourselves. It's difficult when you're in the midst of that conflict with someone. When someone's hurt you or wronged you. And you just want to lash out. Because that's what we want to do. We want to get even. We want to make that other person hurt as much as we're hurting. And Jesus says, not, not in my house. He says, I have a better way. He says, go talk. Talk to them. Fix things. Don't make them worse. As the worship team comes this morning... I want to remind you what Christ did for you. 
He came into this world. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He was accused, put on trial. He was condemned to death. They nailed his body to a cross. He died, he was buried, and for three days, his body stayed in that tomb. But on that third day, God raised him from the dead, putting paid to the debt that we owe for our own sins, for our own debt, something that we could never have done for ourselves, something that we would never be able to achieve under our own power. And he did that by giving his own life for us, for you. He asked for us to trust him, to put our faith and our hope in him. Romans 10, 9 tells us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That all those times that you've messed up, all those times that you've come up short, they're gone. They've been removed as far as the east is from the west. And they have no bearing on your future. He did that for us so that we could have forgiveness. And he's asked us to forgive others. So this morning, if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I encourage you today to ask for that forgiveness, to repent of your sins, to just seek him before everything else. And if you do know him and you have conflict with someone, seek to handle it the way that he says that we should. Start with that private meeting. Go talk to them. If that doesn't work, take a couple people with you. If that doesn't work, keep praying about it. Maybe try that again. If that doesn't work, that next step is serious, and the problem better be as serious as you're making it out to be. And if it is, and that person's still unrepentant, then they're excluded from the church. That's his rules, not mine, but that's the way he's told us to deal with them. So we're going to sing a song of invitation this morning, and if you need to put your faith and your hope and your trust in Christ today to have your sins forgiven, then do that. And if you need today to say, Lord, I've got a problem with somebody, and I'm going to handle it the way you desire, and I'm going to do things your way because I trust that you know best, then do that. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Whatever God's put on your heart today, don't ignore it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your son Jesus who paid the debt that we owe. Thank you that through our faith and trust in him, that all of our sins, that they're forgiven. Father, I just pray that we seek to forgive others the way that you've forgiven us. Instead of looking for the worst, instead of trying to get even, instead of just trying to make somebody hurt as much as we do, that we seek your kingdom first 
and your way of dealing with conflict. Father, help us be people of your word, knowing that you're present in that entire process of restoration, whether that's just as us coming to you as a sinner begging for forgiveness, or as we go in your power seeking forgiveness and restoration from another believer. Lord, you are there with us, encouraging that process, being part of that process, working and moving so that things will be done according to your will. Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you that you've made a way for us by sending him into the world. Thank you that he died so that we could live. Thank you that, that you've just loved us so much to do that. Be with us as your people. Help us be faithful to your word. Help us be what you desire. And I assist in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us?